0: Well hey everyone, welcome to episode 202 of F-STOP Collaborate and Listen. This week I was joined by the winner of the 2020 Epson Panel Awards, Matt Jackish. Matt is a nature photographer residing in Vancouver, British Columbia. When he is not out chasing light with his camera, he's mitigating risk over the skies of British Columbia as an air traffic controller. It was not until embarking on extensive travels that Matt gained a true appreciation for exploration and the rugged beauty of Mother Nature. Like me, Matt enjoys venturing into remote areas and capturing these places rarely seen by most people. Matt and I covered some very interesting topics this week, including art and intention in landscape photography, subjectivity in landscape photography competitions, the direction of landscape photography, drones and the creative process, the devastating effects of climate change in our role as photographers, the sensationalization of reality and sacrificing of authenticity for popularity in landscape photography, and lots more. Over on Patreon this week, Matt and I discussed the advantages of not going pro as a landscape photographer. Well, before we get started, I wanted to let listeners know that things are still alive and well over at Nature Photographers Network. NPN is a vibrant community of like-minded nature photographers just like you. NPN is a platform designed for and by nature and landscape photographers, and membership includes many discounts to great books, tutorials, and more. Check it out by going to naturephotographers.network or by clicking on the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get to the show. Matt Jackish, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, really excited to see that you won the Epson Pano Awards because, uh, first of all, I loved the fact that it was someone who does a lot of backpacking and uh, shoots, mount- shoots mountains like I do. And, um, and it wasn't an aerial photo. So <laughs> uh, yeah. that, was, that was cool. So congratulations.
1: Thanks for that. Yeah, that was quite a surprise, and I mean, such a minimalistic, simple piece of uh, simple image. I I was quite surprised that that one took the prize.
0: Yeah, I was um, very happy to see that it was a ground-based photo. Yeah. I think I I counted uh, out of the top fifty or a hundred. I think it was like sixty or seventy percent of them were taken from the air, which I thought was really fascinating. Oh wow! Uh, but uh, but yeah, so. Congratulations on that! And, you know, for for people that may not know of you, um, are you, I, if I remember correctly, you didn't have like a huge like Instagram following or anything like that before that. So tell us a little bit about yourself, man.
1: Yeah, sure thing. So uh, yeah, my name is Matt Jackish. Uh, I live in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, born and raised here, uh, my whole life pretty much, with a short. Uh, exception on Haida Gwaii. I lived there, went for a year when I was nine. Uh, I am an avid traveler. I love to kite surf. I am quite introverted, uh, quite minimalistic, and I take the odd photograph.
0: (laughs) What do you mean by odd photograph?
1: Uh, I mean, once in a while I go and take pictures and uh, I've slowly been building this portfolio, which is sort of starting to get noticed, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So, so you wouldn't consider yourself by any means a full time photographer. <laughs>
1: no, uh, no, I do have a day job. So, I I uh, work as an air traffic controller. Um, that's my full time job, and uh, it's helped me sort of fund my passion and sponsor my lifestyle. So, uh, it's one of the few jobs that allows a, a pretty decent work life balance, and I've taken full advantage of that uh, to sort of delve into other things on the side so uh it's been good. It's been a challenge to find a balance there but but no, it's been good
0: yeah, and from what I understand, air traffic control is a relatively stressful uh evocation
1: <laughs> yes, uh consequence of error is quite high um it definitely has its moments, but overall, it's pretty routine, and you kind of you kind of just uh it's a very habitual job uh and they say if you find it exciting, then you're probably doing it wrong so <laughs>
0: <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. I think you're the third uh photographer that I know of that's that's an air traffic controller. I'm I'm curious if if, if the stress of the job is that's is that one of the reasons why you go out and take photographs is to kind of escape that that life?
1: Uh you know the 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 stress, I would call it more of a pressure and it's very in the moment. It's like it's, it's not something you really take home with you. It's kind of something you got to deal with very, very uh, instantaneously. And then you've solved something and you move on with your life. And it's not really something that you carry uh, in your day-to-day life. It's not that kind of a, you don't have deadlines. Uh, you, you don't have that sort of type of um, work that you take home with you. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh I I wouldn't say that I'm trying to escape that. Um, I I do thrive on a sort of pressure environment like that. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And uh, from what I understand, um, a lot of your photography is done on long backpacking trips, uh, even in winter months and in the mountains, uh, which for me speaks right... Speaks right to what I love as well. Tell, tell me a little bit about how you got into that, that form of uh, photography.
1: Oh, boy. Well, um, I guess for starters, um, my schedule, I typically work uh, six on, four off. So I get four days off at, at a go. And that's enough time to sort of get somewhere. Uh, You know, I can get down during normal times. I can get down to Oregon or up to the Rockies even or over to Vancouver Island or yeah, do some backpacking in four days. Uh, So I guess just by maximizing that time, um, I've taken to backpacking. And I also find that the more time you spend sort of out there uh, without having to worry about you know, the transportation aspect or the planning aspect, once you're just out there and you're immersed in it, then your mind can really focus on it. And, I mean, you get that many more sunrises and sunsets and you can scout more and, and look for compositions and sort of just assess everything. So, uh, and how I got into that, I mean, it was a very slow process. Uh, you know, I did one backpacking trip maybe 10 years ago and just fell in love with it. And it just opened my eyes to what the possibilities were out there. Uh, and as I started traveling more, um, I you know, lived out of a backpack for almost a year in 2010. And just uh, being able to sustain myself with very little uh, really appealed to me. And I just got very comfortable uh, with this sort of come and go lifestyle. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been great.
0: Yeah. What you said about backpacking speaks to me as well. That's one of the things I love about backpacking is this idea that, you know, you're, you're not spending all this time in the car driving to between locations. As soon as you put the backpack on and start hiking, you're in it. And, and, and like you said, every minute of the hike is a potential opportunity for a photograph, depending on what you're looking for and, of what expectations you have or don't have and uh, I I love that about backpacking you're just in it all day every day for however long you're out there
1: yeah you're totally immersed and it's a really great way to just clean your mind out and uh, and just fixate on you know the beauty of our natural world versus the day-to-day humdrum
0: yeah absolutely maybe that's a great way to segue into a, a topic of conversation that I was hoping to have with you that's just to kind of ask you the question of why do you choose uh, to share the the photographs that you do and and why do you, why are you taking the images that you take what is What is the intention behind your artwork?
1: Oh man oh, right, <laughs> right to the belly of the beast Matt uh, that's right it. um well, I mean, I could write an essay or probably a novel on that just that's one of those things where you're constantly having that conversation with yourself uh while you're doing it. And even while you're at home um, and it's, it's definitely become uh, a huge part of, of my motivation. Um, and I can answer that in a number of different ways. Uh, I wrote once that uh, seeking and capturing the best in nature has really required the best of myself. I mean, I, I have to give it my all to get something <laughs> worthwhile I feel. And uh, just that level of effort and engagement uh, kind of enriches my experience and it usually pays off with, a, with an amazing moment out in nature. So, um, you know, that's, I find that very fulfilling. Um, you know, before I got into photography, I still remember the impact that a really good photograph had on me. It just sort of invited and inspired a new sense of wonder. I was like, you know, you, what, how is that place even possible? Or, or not even a, necessarily a landscape, but just a new concept or a new idea. Um, like I remember years ago, I saw a picture of, uh, a woman in India and she was breastfeeding a baby on one side and a deer on the other. And I was like, what is, <laughs> what am I looking at? And it just sort of like, mo- it just bended my mind and I was just gobsmacked by, by that as an example, but just, of, you know, also landscapes. Like the first time I saw a picture of, uh, Gisadular in Faroe Islands, that little, cliffside village with the waterfall coming down now it's very popular but the first time I saw that picture I'm just like you got to be kidding me like how does this place even exist and it does so that that um reawakening of of that curiosity and that sense of wonder uh sort of got me out there and I I feel like I want to contribute that back I want to I want to bring that to other people um in the way that it was brought to me and uh I I strive to do that for, for people and, and to, to uh, maybe awaken a sense of curiosity in them. Um, I find with photography, you, you can really, uh, you know, impact or mold or even skew perception. And so I want to have a positive consequence via photography. Uh, It's become my, my mode of impact. Um, and for me, I mean, nature, landscapes—that—that that really represents our ultimate reality. So I want to—I want to depict that in the best way that I can.
0: How how does that intention shine through through your through your photography?
1: Ooh, um, I suppose that it um, becomes apparent from uh I try very hard to find unique stuff and stuff that hasn't been really seen or done before mm-hmm. so I don't want to show people what they've already seen I want to continue uh, setting new trends if i if I'm able to do that and uh, continue shining light on on places that that people may have not known existed or or just beauty that that may have not been depicted before. Um, that's what really motivates me is is to just continue moving this forward and and uh, adding something new.
0: So that 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 intention that you speak of for you uh, personally, it seems like it's very pure and based on um, your love for the outdoors and the wilderness, and to really show people kind of these places and these scenes that perhaps maybe no one has seen before. I'm curious, how does that contr- contrast with what you see um, kind of in the general sphere of landscape photography today?
1: Uh, I mean, there's such a wide variety of, of uh, what people are um, sharing mm-hmm. online. And uh, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of Uh, repetition and stuff like that. And um, I mean, you see a lot of uh, familiar places and familiar scenes. um, And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that because someone else might have a different set of intentions. They may simply want to share something beautiful and there's, I can't take anything away from that. That's, that's a very valid reason to take pictures. Uh, Mm -hmm. However, if your intention is sort of to, find a way to distinguish yourself in whatever medium you're in, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, sports or business or architecture, fashion, y- you kind of got to bring something new to the table. So, um, I guess for me that that's, I've found that to be important. I, I want to, uh, find ways to add something. Um, and I'm trying to do it via photography.
0: Hmm. If yeah. That makes any sense. It does make a lot of sense. I mean, I think, That's where I've, I I try to do the same myself, although there you know, I don't know about you, but I find that approach to be much more challenging and like.
1: Oh, huge. Yeah. Um, Much less productive. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Much higher level of risk um, because you may try to bring something new to the table and it just doesn't connect. And, you know, that's, that's part of the risk of, of uh, um, trying to, you know, see a new vision into fruition uh is that it just might not connect and you know there's a risk there you're kind of exposing vulnerability but that's just part of what this is it's part of what it is to to be an artist i think
0: mhm yeah it's interesting that um this idea of kind of asking yourself what what is it that i'm sharing and why am i sharing it or or what is it that i'm making photographs of and why am i making these photographs because What I often find is that at least if you consume enough of this photographic medium over time, you can start to, you can kind of tell what people's motivations are for sharing what they share and why. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm curious if you've kind of had that same experience uh, from your perspective. Uh,
1: Just from what I've kind of seen uh, from, from other people?
0: Yeah. Or kind of what you see in terms of uh you know does it I guess what I'm asking is is does it seem relatively obvious a lot of the times what people's intents are behind what they're sharing <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I would say that it is uh I mean, you take a platform like Instagram that um it provides positive reinforcement for a very specific type of image. Mm-hmm. And so you you see people sort of fall into that. They 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 think along those lines. They know what they have to do. They know they have to shoot or or composing a four by five sort of vertical. Uh, you know, you put a person in the middle of the frame. The more skin <laughs> showing, the better, um, and all that stuff. And and typically that will do quite well. Um, and so you you see people sort of follow the formulas to uh, to get successful or to, to get a higher audience and, uh, I get why people do that. Um, and it just, it definitely takes a bit of a discipline to try and think away from that. Just, just shoot what, what, shoot what, what works for you or what the scene presents to you and, um, just sort of in the moment, uh, spontaneously think for whatever you're presented with, whatever the ge- geometry and light give you, um, without thinking about how it will be received later on or whether it's gonna make a good print or whether it's gonna um, appeal to sponsors or whatever. And I mean uh, I, I think that people uh, might might when they're in the field, they might be impacted already by whether the what they're trying to capture will be popular or not. And I mm-hmm. don't think those two things should go. Should should really be considered in that moment. I think if you see something awesome, you know, go for it, and uh, you know, to compose how it however it needs to be composed, however your mind is working that day, however your mood is, and, and then go from there.
0: Yeah, and I don't at the risk of sounding judgy or quote unquote woke or whatever. I don't mean to say that you know people that spend their time trying to you know follow that formula or shoot for those intentions, it makes them somehow bad photographers or less than you or whatever. But I do find that when I see that kind of stuff over and over again, it definitely feels very inauthentic in terms of it's, you know, it's pretty obvious what they're trying to do. Like they're trying to either gain popularity or gain product sponsorship or whatever. Like I can remember a couple of weeks ago, I've been working on uh, putting a bunch of stuff into my Forerunner to, for for overlanding. And so yeah. I have like all this stuff on my truck now. And my wife found this account of some guy on Instagram that I don't think, I think it was like a sponsored post that came across her feed for some reason. And she's like, oh, you should have this guy on your podcast. And I was looking through this guy's feed. And, you know, like 80% of the photos were like him and his Jeep with his rooftop tent in some beautiful location. And mm-hmm. it was, like, obvious that he – the intent behind why he was sharing his images was for – to sell the idea of, you know, he's on the road to 24-7, 365, and he's he's kind of selling a lifestyle, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, a- and maybe an image as well.
0: Right, um, and I, I mean, I'm not saying there's something wrong with that, but it, it was like, well, that intention, to me, just – it's not exciting. It's like – I like that's not art to me. I don't it doesn't excite me from the from a an aesthetic perspective. I mean, obviously cool that he's able to make a living traveling around in his vehicle 24/7 365 and selling that idea to product sponsors and things of that nature, but in terms of it exciting me from a photography perspective it was not very exciting to me, but I don't, that's me. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a massive difference between something that was created for the sake of being popular or pushing a brand or just creating for the sake of experimenting. Those are two very different things. And uh, I enjoy the experimental process as much as I can. Um, I mean, I get ideas and inspiration, certainly from other photographers and even uh digital artists and painters or whatever, but um, I try to sort of mold them into my own style.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, I just, um, I think this question of of why is a very important one that we should all ask ourselves. Uh, what I found for myself about, oh, three years ago now, uh, I was meddling with a lot of funky post-processing techniques and compositing and things like that. And when I asked myself why, I did not like the answer <laughs> that, I, that I had for myself. And so I oh, stopped nice. doing it, you know? And I think, yeah. um, I think that question is a really good one to ask ourselves around not only the photograph that we're making, but also how we process the photo, how we share it, how we talk about it. I think that why can lead to some very interesting and powerful realizations about ourselves and our behaviors.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's very important to have that conversation with yourself. And the more honest you can be with yourself, I think the more uh the more your art will really will really shine and and the more accurate it'll be it'll be a part of you.
0: Yeah. a part of you. Yeah. Well maybe this is a good place to to shift gears a little bit. Cause I think related to this idea of, you know, why is also what we are we see a lot of um, in landscape photography these days, which is kind of this sensationalization of reality and the sacrificing of authenticity for popularity, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I think is a little bit of what we've already been talking about. But I was curious kind of what it is you see that's happening around that idea uh, in, in landscape photography today. Um,
1: I mean, the biggest thing is that this recent... Um software that will just replace a sky with basically the click of a button, you know, like, Oh, you didn't get a good sky. Well, here's a magical sky for you. And uh, it's, it's like, have we fallen out of love with reality and, and is reality even good enough anymore Um, versus uh, you know, let's, let's make something look like we wished it could have looked. Um, And I guess, you know, it seems like that's the direction photography has started going is is uh, to depict something that we wish we could have seen or something that we think people will like better than what we were given. And again, that comes down to, you know, intention and how, how much we're willing to um, how much of what we experience we're willing to forego for, for what we're presenting. Um, and I guess you can do that under the guise of being a digital artist and, and um, merging things together and stuff like that. Um you know, that's, that's legit as well. Um, but I think we're talking about, those are two different genres now. Um, you know, uh, trying to depict something that happened versus trying to depict something else. I guess it's two different things. Um,
0: well, and the, for me, the key word is authenticity. So, so often, uh, when people share those images online, uh, they typically pair it with some kind of, Description about their experience that probably isn't even remotely close to what they actually experienced. If you saw the raw file, um, oh yeah, yeah. And I think the reason why people do that is because, and again, I'm just speaking from my own personal experience of why I used to do this, is that uh, they want people to believe that what they're seeing from this image was some was real.
1: Yeah yeah totally, and I, and I guess they figure it, it's more impressive that way, and it, it it maybe it does look more impressive too, but uh, uh, what are you selling here like is there like what's the reason for doing that?
0: right, I think this kind of goes back to the why you know it's uh, yeah. if we're being honest about why we're doing it, I mean, I would be so happy if someone just said, Well, the reason I do it is because I think it looks cool and I want to be popular." <laughs> like, uh, yeah, or I want people to like my photography. You know, like just be honest about it.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I like dressing up my photos and making them. You know, maybe uh, making the light ex- accentuating the light a little bit more, or making it more contrasty and stuff like that. Like I, 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 sure. I did it more before, and now I'm kind of like, oh, okay, I'm going to back off now and just see how subtle I can get this to look good and. To look accurate and and man that's even harder to do like it's harder to get a photo to look real and still tell the story and have a, a flow to it and and captivate the audience that's that's tough to do
0: yeah yeah it's it's way harder than it sounds <laughs>
1: it is yeah i mean i just uh i, I just edited a uh, tree shot it's a panorama um and it's a backlit Scene. so there's just this harsh dynamic range and i just wanted it to look like it did in real life because it was so beautiful and it took me like eight or ten hours to to put this thing together and i mean that's just that's what it takes
0: right yeah no it's it is funny how sometimes because of the technology it's sometimes harder to make something look real than it is to look fake (laughs)
1: yeah yeah totally
0: yeah, well, you know, and I obviously, I, I can't speak for everybody, but um, I think sometimes what happens is um, people have a very limited amount of time that they can make photographs. And, you know, maybe they go out once a month on a weekend. And if the conditions aren't what they expected, then they want to try to salvage their time by making the final photo something that it's not. Um, Just to kind of, I don't know, salvage the moment, I guess. Uh, At least that's one theory that I have, I guess. I I could be wrong.
1: No, I I think that's true. And uh, yeah, if you get get one shot at some place that you're never going back to and, you know, you get decent light but not great light and you want to dress it up more, then I get why people do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, I guess the other side of it is, is that there's an integrity to this, to this art that perhaps should be preserved so that people can, can know that they can believe in what they see. Um, I've, you know, you start encountering this sort of skepticism and even cynicism towards photography because you always get, oh, that's fake or that's photoshopped or, you know, it's just automatically assumed now that, that, um, this stuff is, uh, Manipulated it to a point where it's not real anymore and it's not believable. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I really want people to be able to believe what they see when they look at my work. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Like, you know, it, it, happened, it was real. And, and I, I went back four times to get it. And, and you know, that's what happened. Um, there's so much value in that, but, but it's, it's, uh, you know, when, when, um, there's so much work out there that sort of just paints in whatever something else. Then, uh, like a real light theme is no longer really as valuable as a fake one,
0: <laughs> right? Or uh, to your point, like a epic sunset or uh, interesting dappled light on on the on the landscape itself. Like you can just paint that stuff in now. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean I, I, I want people to believe in uh, you know, what, when we're out there uh, in nature and and uh, photographing nature and depicting nature, I feel like uh, we need to be true to it like we need to we need to uh, depict it accurately because nature represents our true reality to me, and I feel almost a duty to try and somehow uh convey it as it was mm-hmm. um, that's my personal feeling
0: right and you know it's an interesting idea right because photography has never really been ac- an accurate representation of reality right because it's there's so many things about reality that we choose to include or exclude based on the choice of lens or what we include in the frame um, or you know the shutter speed that we pick pick for the image. Uh, or how we or how we emphasize or deemphasize certain aspects of of the raw file, things of that nature. But I think I think the general public has a sense of you know when you look at a photograph, whether or not it somewhat accurately depicts something that you you yourself could also experience, mm-hmm. right? And I think that I think that there is for whatever reason. Uh, this idea about photography as an art form, this limitation that it is somewhat based in an actual experience, I think is for at least for me is one of the things that makes it an exciting art form. It's because it um, it makes it more challenging to work within that constraint. When you eliminate that constraint, it for me, it no longer becomes uh Photography anymore. It's it's a different art form, and uh, I'm not saying it's a lesser art form. I just personally don't see it as the you know once you eliminate the constraint of uh, depiction of actual experience, then I think you've kind of opened the door to a different dimension.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's impossible to say where that line is. It's just uh, everybody has a different perception of of what is what is, what happened and what was real or or to. Uh, convey their emotion through the scene by making a little bit more of this and that. Um, yeah. It's just so hard to, to put a set of rules on that. Um, I'm only know what, I only know what I want to do and what I'm trying to do. And uh, you know, some of my greatest inspirations in, in photography are, are very good at um, working with the light. And some would say they maybe take it too, a little too far. Um, but I, I just love looking at their work and, and they are true artists. So, uh, you know, more power to them.
0: Uh, for sure. I, I don't want to take anything away from, mm. from, from people that, you know, do what I would consider digital art with their photographic material. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think once people start, trying to pass it off as something that they actually experienced when it clearly wasn't something that they actually experienced, then that's where I think uh, you've kind of crossed the line for me in terms of authenticity um, Mm -hmm. and being honest with your, with your, uh, your audience. (laughs)
1: I've actually considered, um, when I share something, also sharing, uh, a screenshot of the raw file or even a screenshot of the back of my camera, just to, just to show people how, how close it was, Mm -hmm. um, just, just to really drive home that, uh, you know, it was what I saw. It was, it did exist.
0: Right. And I guess for me, kind of where I draw the line and I think, um, I think it's a fair way of drawing the line is that, uh. If I look at if I look at the photograph and I'm and I'm able to kind of stand uh, where you stood um, in the same conditions that you had, and then I look at the raw file, do I feel deceived? Right. Yeah. Um, as a photographic, a photography literate person, would I feel deceived if I were to to actually see the raw file? And to me, that kind of and that sort of implies intent. And I know that not all people edit with the intent of deceiving, but I think if you describe it in a certain way and then you look at the raw file, I think there is some deception that you are doing intentionally there. I think to play on people's desire for something to actually represent an experience that they too could have.
1: Yeah. I, I suppose, um, you know, just by sensationalizing it to a point where it, it really appeals to people. Um, and then suddenly, you know, uh, just a boring real image is, isn't really appealing anymore. I guess that's the slippery slope that we find ourselves going down.
0: Um, it is. Well, and what I think is interesting is that, you know, earlier we had said that when we sensationalize reality, we're sacrificing authenticity. I'm sorry, we're sacrificing authenticity for popularity. Mm-hmm. That implies the, that that's the intent. And I've talked to at least a few people that produce that type of work who would tell you that's not why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have still have never really heard a very convincing counter-argument to that.
1: Yeah, and that's not just happening in photography. It's happening in all aspects of life. I mean, we have a, a musical band here in Vancouver called uh, Delhi to Dublin, and they have this really unique sound. They're like kind of an Indian Bangra-style music fused with uh, Celtic violin. So it's just this this combination that I've never heard before. They're really good, really unique. You've, you've just never heard anything like it. Uh, but they never get played on the radio. Um, so anyway, I found out about these people uh, maybe quite a few years ago. And just recently, I heard them on the radio for the first time uh, with some new music. But their new music was unrecognizable to their original style. It was more of a pop song, like just, you know, like any other song. Um so I was like, "Oh, interesting." Like so in order to get a radio play, they kind of uh you know, abandoned their original sound to appeal to a wider audience and uh I didn't recognize them at all from the, I would have not known unless they had said who it was. And I just thought that was really interesting and I guess it's happening in so many different forms.
0: Well, I think in the music industry that's called selling out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I guess I guess it's called turning pop. <laughs>
0: Yeah. 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 And I know a lot of musical artists, you know, they get made fun of because of that, because they didn't stick true to their original sound. Um, and I think, you know, they're the people that were their huge fans before that happened. you know, they really, they look down on it big time, which is super interesting. You know, it's like, like you say, they're kind of sacrificing a part of who they are to become popular.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean, some will not do that. I remember, Uh, maybe 20 years ago I was listening to uh, an interview from uh, Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins
0: Uh uh and
1: they were uh, disbanding they were they were breaking up and he was frustrated and he was saying well we can't compete with manufactured artists like Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys like we just can't keep up and so they decided to call it quits and I was like oh interesting like because that was kind of the birth of the manufactured artists musical artists back then it was it was kind of a new thing the boy band and uh, the pop star, and and so uh, you know they were a bona fide rock band, and their sound was so unique, and and he wasn't going to change, so they were like, we're done.
0: Isn't that interesting? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know what's um what's funny about this particular topic for photograph landscape photography, is you often hear the counter arguments that, well, it's my art, and I should be able to do whatever I want without anyone telling me what is or isn't correct or right and I totally agree like I I, I'm not here to tell you what's right or wrong however I will say that saying that it doesn't impact anyone by yourself is not is not necessarily accurate you know what I mean like yeah we don't live in a we don't live in our own individual bubbles like we're part of a a movement we're part of a community we're part of a art form that we all partake in and you know like to your point about Billy Corgan and the smashing pumpkins, you know, the, the pop, the popularization of these manufactured musical artists had a negative impact on, on them. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you look at music today, I mean, uh, there's not nearly as much originality. uh, And so I guess you see that in photography as well. Um, Right.
0: Or you, you see that, um, that style of imagery typically rises to the top of, you know, what gets seen Mm -hmm. and the stuff that's got more of a quieter look, a more natural look typically isn't as celebrated.
1: Yeah, I guess there's just not as as great of an audience for it. And uh, like, I guess Instagram has become the, the main method of sharing that type of work, which is just an absolute tragedy for landscape artists because most of their <laughs> actual, uh, work is in landscape form. And it, it's, you know, landscape it doesn't view well on the phone overall. Um, right. so you have to kind of change the way you, you show it or showcase it, uh, in order to reach your audience. And there are sacrifices there for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just wanted to make the point that what we do as individuals does have an impact on other people, uh, whether you think it does or not, um, because, for example, now the general public expects landscape photography to to be something that it typically isn't, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to compete now. Uh with um, those types of images, for sure in in that in that medium on Instagram, um, but I still think there's a there's a market and an audience for it, but it, it's definitely not on Instagram.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I um I recently sold two prints uh, to somebody who actually said the reason why they went with me is because I had this article on my website about digital manipulation and it's a pretty long article, but she said that she liked the fact that I tried to present my photographs um, more realistically instead of compositing. And she actually had me show her screenshots of the raw files of the photos that she purchased, um, which I've never had anyone ever do before. So that was super interesting that to your point, there is a, there is a market for Mm. that. Uh, But I think it's kind of hard to get your, it's hard to get eyeballs on it, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you can really achieve that, a level of trust with your audience, um, even though it's not going to be a huge audience, it's still going to be a high quality engagement then, like, because uh, they know that that photograph was what you experienced with and what, how hard you worked to get it. And I think it makes them appreciate it more. Right. um, Versus just some, some random thing uh, that, that was paste it together, um, you know, that just happens to look good, but but may not really uh, have – the artist may not really connect with it, and therefore the audience won't. Right. Well,
0: yes. And I would argue if you were to ask a lot of those people if those images connect to them, they would – for whatever reason, they would probably say that those images do connect to them and they enjoy creating them. Uh, but it's not the same type of connection that perhaps you and I would have with something that represents an experience. I think it, often what I think it boils down to is what do you place value in as an artist, right? Mm. Like as someone who loves nature and, and loves being, loves the experience of being in nature and loves hiking and seeing mountains and all that, like having my photographs represent those experiences is important to me, but for somebody else, maybe that, that just isn't something that's important to them. Right. So and I'm not saying that makes them like bad or worse, but I think that is sometimes what, what we see driving that kind of stuff. Yeah.
1: Like more, more of a creative vision and, and, and uh, sort of that kind of thing. Like, uh, yeah, yeah I, I guess it's just digital art. I mean, I've, I've composited before and I've just said this is a composite, um, I even, you know, I had one where I, uh, I Photoshopped a bird in, I mean, it was a bird that was shot nearby and it just wasn't in the original scene, but I didn't feel right about just presenting it that way. So I actually added in the very bottom of my description, Hey, like this bird is from a different shot. Like it's, it's a different bird. And I just want people to know that I'm not trying to deceive them in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just, that's just
0: important. It's just important to me. I, I don't know yeah I know it's important to me as well yeah well let's uh let's talk about photography contests <laughs> <laughs> uh it's an interesting segue because what we typically see more often than not is uh those types of images that have been um heavily manipulated uh typically do much better although not always but typically do much better than images that are not and um obviously you're somewhat of an exception to that, um, in your recent win, uh, in Epson Pano awards. Uh, but if you look at like the um, international landscape photographer of the year, uh, you know, vast majority of the photography that's been awarded in there has been to some degree fairly heavily manipulated. Although I wouldn't say all of it has been, but quite a bit of it has. Yeah. Um,
1: it's, yeah, very interesting. I read through that thread on Facebook that really attracted a lot of attention among the photography community. Um and yeah, it was very interesting. Uh especially because uh the international landscape contest typically has has gravitated towards uh work that looked more original or or felt more intimate and uh was maybe a little more true to form. Mm -hmm. in the past. And and I feel like they took a bit of a left turn this year. Um, So I was certainly a little bit surprised. Um, Something you might find interesting is that the tree image that, that won the Pano awards. um, I also entered that tree image into international landscape photographer, and it was one of my lowest scoring shots (laughs) in that contest. So fascinating. It just goes to show you how subjective it is, right? There's no best. um, um, So, All the judges are different. All the agendas are different. Uh, The brand of the of the contest is different, and who they decide who who wins or how they how they decide to present uh, the best photographs is, is always. It seems to be different not only contest to contest, but year to year, and you just you just never know what they're looking for.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think the uh, panel of judges that is chosen for any particular competition in any particular year plays a huge part of that. I know that uh, typically one of the issues, I guess you could say, with that other competition is that often it's not landscape photographers who are judging. And so interestingly, they don't have a... Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? They're not steeped in kind of being able to see what, uh, you know, if they, someone, someone presents an image of a very epic, uh, iconic location that's been heavily manipulated, but they've never, maybe have never seen a photograph of that location before because they're not a landscape photographer. Yeah. They don't, Um, they don't
1: scroll Instagram all day and and are familiar with, uh, you know, what the typical benchmark images of that place are
0: right so then you know when they see like something that something from a location like that and presented in such an epic way they're probably just blown away right like oh my god that's incredible and then someone else who maybe spends all their time studying landscape photography they would see an image like that and be like "Eh, it's the same old shot from the same old spot (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah
1: there was there were some surprises in there this year for sure uh yeah um, and I, I think you're right. Uh, the the panel on that one uh, typically are not landscape shooters. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, they, they their perception of of uh, what stands out is is different in their mind from what a landscape photographer might say in their mind. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's still some great images in there, but there's there's a there's a wide variety of quality I found this time.
0: Yeah and to your point it's it's very interesting to to see i think what's interesting about contests is that typically the types of photographs that are chosen to win kind of pushes the zeitgeist of of um the craft in that direction for like a year or two for example we've seen more and more aerial photos win right mm-hmm. so we see many 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 more people now using drones um because yeah. They want to. They're like, well, obviously, if I need, if I want to have a chance of winning a competition, I should get a drone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and that's such a new a new genre to this to this medium uh, that people are still really discovering what's out there with their drones and what can be done. Uh, so uh, there's been some pretty interesting uh, perspectives presented that I would have never considered or seen before that are that are drone photography um and how people feel about that being lumped into the same genre as photography for these contests is is probably a pretty major point of contention right Um, (laughs) but uh well it's
0: kind of going back to what you we had said earlier is like how is that a level level playing field if um (laughs) like if you don't own a drone you can't compete right
1: yeah yeah uh it's funny because I do own a drone and and I just can't connect with uh, the photography from it. I just, uh, I think going back to intention, like uh, one of the things I want to convey is uh, my experience or even not even my experience, but a, an experience, a human experience yes. that someone can go and have. And a drone photograph for me is, is, is not a human experience. So you're conveying something awesome and beautiful. And I, I love drone photography, but I just don't connect personally very well with it.
0: Yeah. it's. Um, I've been doing a lot of drone photography this last six, seven months. And uh, I typically go with my friend Kane and I have the, the Mavic Air 2 and I use it on my tiny little iPhone as a screen, right? right. And he has the Mavic Air uh, or the Mavic Pro 2 and he uses an iPad for his screen. Oh wow and and it's so much more immersive um, to to kind of watch him fly his drone versus my experience on my tiny screen on my phone mm-hmm. so I, I do think uh, the experience of flying and capturing images with a drone can be an interesting experience and a powerful mm-hmm. one yeah. if, you know if you love nature and you love seeing what you can see with it but I do agree with you that it's not as powerful of an experience at least for me as ground-based photography is.
1: Yeah, 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 I mean there's if it's not my own experience uh then I don't connect as well with with the the work. Um I mean I don't even really connect that well with aerial shots like uh you know like you fly over Greenland and you see something amazing uh from from the airplane and you get a shot of it but then I just I just uh it's it's beautiful but I what's the story? Like uh oh between the the lion king and chernobyl I took this picture. And, <laughs> It's like, I don't know how to, it's, there's just no experience behind it. Um, Uh And for me, that's important, I guess. Uh, Yeah.
0: How does the difference between flying a drone and using a a ground-based camera, how does that affect the creative process, do you think? Uh, Well,
1: for starters, I mean, when you show up somewhere and you have three lenses and drone, I think it's a little overwhelming. I I think that's, you, you have too many, uh tools and too many ways to to convey a scene and you might even miss the shot just because you can't decide how to do it so you can get overwhelmed a little bit easier or maybe you just gravitate towards the drone because you assume that it's better up in the air Uh, i guess also it, it uh it helps like you don't really have to move around as much so you can stay in one place and let your drone do your exploring for you Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's less problem solving. There's less, uh, trail finding, there's less climbing. And I love all that stuff. I love finding like, how am I going to get up there? Like that that tree looks awesome. I got to get up there. Right. And with a drone, it's like put it in the air and, and get it done that way. Um, and I guess in a way you're, you're sort of reducing your own experience a little bit.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, it sounds like you and I are very similar in terms of the value we place on experience on the experience that we have as a photographer. Um, or when I look at other photographers work, I kind of put myself in their shoes and that's how I uh, consume the medium is mm-hmm. trying to experience it through their experience. And, and that's what gets me excited about seeing really great photography is I can kind of connect with what they went through uh, to make the photograph and what it was like to be there to see what they saw. And that's also partially why I don't connect with images that have been just, you know, manufactured in Photoshop as, as, as much. Um, but I agree with you that, uh, I feel the same way about drone. When I look at drone photography, I I've seen some absolutely stunning images. Mm-hmm. Um, like the composition, the light, the, you know, the point of view, like it's all just amazing and incredible. Uh, but it's still not, there's something missing for me, like, uh, because I can't, to your point uh, earlier, I I can't put myself in the shoes of the photographer to say that I could experience that.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess we're just a bunch of old purists, say Matt?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I would never call myself a purist, but I do think, um, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that word, but I think for me, it's just, it, it all boils down to experience, um, the experience of making the photograph and some for some somehow that's missing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I can't say for myself, uh, what a person feels, uh, their connection they feel to their work when it's shot that way. Um, but I, I feel a deep connection with my own work. I, it's a part of me. It's a part of like what I went out there and, and did and, you know, probably suffered for. Uh, but it's a piece of me. Like I really feel that. Um, and that's what I want. That's, that's what I, I need that connection, uh, with it to really feel, um, like I have a story behind it and I have an experience behind it to, right. to, to give it value.
0: Right. Like when you, value. when you look at it and you like, I don't know about you, but I have, a handful of images that when I look at them, it takes me right back to that moment and that experience. And it's like, I get super excited just remembering what it was like to be there in that moment.
1: Oh man. Um, Yeah, totally.
0: And uh, when I was doing composite photography back in like 2015, 16, um, I would look at those photos, not even photos. You can't, you can't call them photographs. When I would look at those images that I was creating It like it was an empty feeling like there was nothing like yeah it looks cool but I can't connect to it I mean there I just I don't know and maybe for people that do that a lot they connect to it in a different way but for me it just I can't connect to something that I didn't actually witness myself
1: Mm -hmm. or maybe uh, that sense of connection is not important to everybody who knows
0: exactly yeah Yeah. and and that's fine For them, I guess. <laughs> Doesn't work for me though. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about, um, which we probably could spend an hour just talking about this, uh, but uh something that I'm hugely passionate about, and it sounds like you are as well, and that is kind of the experience of being a nature and landscape photographer amidst the devastating effects of climate change and the unfortunate kind of shrinking of the natural and natural world and wild places that exist. And I'm curious, what has that experience uh, been like for for you as a photographer and as a person who loves nature?
1: Oh man. Uh, it's, whew, that's a big one. Um, it has been tremendously sad because Uh, once you start to see what's out there, you also see how quickly it's disappearing. And uh, like nature just represents so much to me. Um, And there's very few examples now of an ecosystem that has never known the disturbance of humans. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm very fortunate to live near a couple of those places. And when I go into them, it's just like, wow, like uh, you're just witnessing this undisturbed process, um, that took an eternity to create and how we just tear those places apart without giving it a second thought just astounds me. Um, so I'm feeling an increased sense of urgency now, particularly when I go into the forests, mm-hmm. um, because they're being harvested very quickly. Uh, not, uh, also, um, you know, with the, we have mountain pine beetle up here, we have uh, as you know, anywhere forest fires are a big thing. Yeah, um, This year, I was going to do a – I still probably am going to do a canoe trip to uh, Spirit Island in Jasper with my dad. More just for a trip, but but uh, I was going to bring my camera. Um, are you familiar with Spirit Island? It's it's uh, Malign Lake, and it's that famous, very iconic Canadian uh, scene with an island in the middle of this beautiful lake surrounded by mountains.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: The trees on that island are dead now. They're they're all red and brown.
0: Oh, man. Um,
1: yeah. So, um, you know, not that I needed to get that shot or whatever, but but it's just sad to see that even our iconic locations are being affected by this. And uh, when you go into a place like Jasper now, the hillsides are all red and brown and, and there's less and less green. And I just wonder if, if every year of going back to the Rockies, if that's what we're going to see or... Uh, and I mean, that stuff's just one lightning strike away from being tinder and sizzling to the ground. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I used to spend a lot of time down in Eagle Creek, down in Oregon. And now that place has been, uh, deeply impacted by the fires as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, yeah I spent a few time, few, few days in there myself. <laughs> oh
1: yeah. I mean, you can't go wrong in there. It's so beautiful you know, or it was, I mean, hopefully it, it bounces back pretty quick here. Uh, I'm sure you've seen David Attenborough's uh, latest, or I have, uh, and he talks about the reduction in wild spaces. Uh, yeah,
0: it's it's um pretty pretty alarming to see the rate at which wild places are being destroyed. Oh man, like one
1: generation, pretty much, and this is what. So, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but at times I feel like I'm just like writing the obituary of the forest. You know, just this is what once was, and uh, hopefully a few generations later, people can still enjoy what's left of, you know, via the pictures. Um, we'll see. I mean, it's so hard to know whether we're going to get an act together here quicker than sooner than later. But,
0: um, yeah, I, um, I recently listened to a podcast. It's the wilderness podcast and he, they had on a pretty famous uh, filmmaker. Uh, I think his name is David Brundage. Um, I might've missed, missed, Pronounce that, but uh, he's done a lot of films for Nat Geo and things like that. Um, and anyway, they were talking about really just how close we are to the precipice here, um, in terms of a point of no return. Mm-hmm. All of the all of the data suggests that by if we don't make drastic changes by twenty thirty, it's pretty. We're pretty much. It's it, there's no way of stopping it. And a big part of it is the decalcification of the oceans. Mm -hmm. Um, Two out of every three breaths that we take, the oxygen in the air is created by microorganisms that live in the ocean. And those microorganisms depend on calcium to create their shells um, Mm -hmm. to stay alive. And um, what's happening is... uh, because the temperature in the water is rising it's making it more acidic yeah um and so the those there's just not as much calcium present in the water because of that change in chemistry and so once those organisms no longer can thrive they will no longer be producing oxygen and we will no longer be able to breathe that's pretty dire isn't it that's <laughs> <laughs> insane
1: yeah, it, um, it really is. And it's and very, uh, it's also very inconvenient. <laughs> I I
0: just feel, I don't, I feel kind of paralyzed by, by the whole thing just because of how, yes, if each individual did something on their own, you could make a small impact. But really we're talking about massive shifts in our economic systems, in our cultures, in The economies of third world countries. I mean, we're talking about huge, huge, huge ships that need to be righted and quickly. Uh huh. Yeah, it's frightening to me. But
1: it it really is. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough subject to to get into without really getting into it. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen all the documentaries that really outline what's what's happening and. It, it just seems like it's impossible to get away from. Like it's, it's almost like we have to go over this cliff to get on, to get to the other side of it. Cause otherwise we're not going to learn our lesson. Cause I, I just feel like uh, it's not front of mind for enough people yet. And for policymakers uh, to really get serious about it until we really start to see the devastation. Um, and, you know, year after year, the, the effects are becoming more and more clear. Uh, so, we'll see it, it, it climate change or dealing with climate change is not a popular issue because it really, you're always pitted against the, the economy and, and jobs. Right. And, and, and so we're like a victim of our own system here. And, um, you know, if we really want to reduce our, our impacts, we need to consume so much less. And of course, <laughs> that devastates people by omitting jobs and omitting production and, uh, so what do you do? Uh, yeah, it's it's quite the conundrum. And
0: yep. I try and use my, for uh,
1: instance, what, you know, you do what you can as an individual.
0: Yeah, and I think it's kind of a false choice uh, be- between choosing uh, the economy or the environment because, you know, there is economic industry in sustainable energy, which isn't without its flaws as well. You know, there's still carbon uh, output in solar and wind. Um, In hydro, but it's less, you know, it's less impactful. So it's more a matter of like shifting what we uh, spend our efforts on. But yeah, it's uh, like, you're right. It's politicized because people think that, well, you're, you're telling, you're telling me that we have to get rid of all these jobs. And if we get rid of all these jobs and people will be in poverty and that's a worse problem, but it's like, yes. And if, if, the earth doesn't exist in 20 years. Who cares? <laughs> you know, like, yeah,
1: totally. Um, yeah. It's like, who wants change? Everybody who wants to change? Nobody is that, that whole thing. Uh, and like, yeah, here, here locally where I'm from, uh, you know, the big issue or one of the big issues is logging. And right. you know, it's like, well, I, my family depends on logging. I need to cut these trees down so that I can, I can survive. And, and there's just that mentality that, it's it's i hate to call it a sense of entitlement but um you know to to just dismantle these places without giving it a forward thought is is uh we're not a, we're not a very forward-thinking species really yeah uh, we we just think for our our personal survival but not the survival of, of the future generations uh, yeah it's
0: it's so true you know yeah. i was curious this might be hitting home for you as an air traffic controller but uh I think one of the upcoming debates that we're gonna see more and more of in landscape photography is how a lot of photographers uh make their living on traveling the world in airplanes, which emits a pretty huge chunk of carbon uh, yes. to to travel that much um, I'm curious how do you see that particular debate changing as we head into the future with landscape photography? I can see a splintering happening in the community of landscape photographers, of those that say that you're being selfish by traveling all over the world. And then those that say that, well, if I don't travel, then I'm not showing people the beautiful places. What what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. You're right. It it might go in that direction. I think actually, well, this year is going to be a really not well, 2020, I should say, it's going to be a great experiment when we look back and see what the actual reduction in air traffic was and and if that helped to improve uh the planet's state uh, yes there's a lot less airplanes flew last year which was you know devastating for the line of work i'm in but um you know if it, let's say there was a 50 percent reduction you know it if that was that enough did that make an impact i'd be really curious to know uh what right. that impact was and if they're able to measure that and see because because 50% less air traffic is massive and you're never going to get that voluntarily or, or for any other reason. So um, I'd love to see that, that data and, and see if they take a look at that kind of thing. And um, I think that will impact um, people who are sensitive to that in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and and hopefully um, people are a little more mindful about those decisions to go travel uh, if it is, if it is really that impactful.
0: Uh, yeah, no, I think looking at the data for sure would be a great place to start. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it'll really be interesting to see where uh, travel goes from here and if if it returns anywhere near normal to what it was. Uh, but what an amazing time to, to be alive to, to have been able to basically get to any corner of the world within, 48 hours. Uh, I mean, that's really only been a thing for the last 50, 70 years of right. our, our history. And and what an amazing time to be able to do that and access unique cultures um, that are still, you know, not amalgamated into the greater cultures. And, and that's just been amazing to, to uh, be able to access and engage. Um, so I definitely, I'm grateful that I got to see what I saw and, and, explore the world for when I, when I could and, and, and know and understand that that's really only something that my generation and the generation or two before mine could actually do.
0: Right. No, it is. Um, like you said, what a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool, man. Well, wrapping things up, who would you recommend, uh, for the podcast? Who, who do you think our listeners would love to hear about?
1: Um so have you ever tried to get Erin Toley on here?
0: I have not, although I'm friends with uh TJ. Yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, yeah, Erin is she's such a great photographer and uh, I love her work. Um and I'd wonder if she'd uh partake in something like this. She strikes me as being a little shy, but uh, so I'm not sure if she'd be into something like this, but uh I'd be really uh curious to hear her story. Awesome. Uh, name number two, uh, so TJ Watt.
0: Okay.
1: He's a local photographer here. He lives on Vancouver Island and he uh, plays an integral part in the Ancient Forest Alliance, okay. which is sort of raising awareness to our last remaining old growth forests. Um, so he's big into uh, conservation and um, documenting our last beautiful uh, old growth. And he recently uh, released a very powerful series uh, where he posed beside several really large trees and then went back six months later and posed beside the same trees, only they had all been cut down. Uh, so he's posing beside clear-cut stumps. Oh, wow. And so seeing those photos side by side, he's got several of them, was quite impactful. And I think it helped people really to realize what's happening out there. And so I I think it'd be great to hear what he has to say.
0: Yeah.
1: Awesome. Uh, I'd also think it'd be cool to hear from Benjamin Mays. Uh, he's a young uh, Australian photographer and he's just up and coming guy. He's got a really unique look uh, with his work. Uh, he's he's definitely got resolve and he he's going into this full steam. So I think he's got a lot of potential. I think he's got a bright future in this and I, I think it'd be cool to hear his story. Awesome. Uh, last name, uh, I'd like to hear from uh, Daniel Lang. Yeah. A very moody photographer. I think he's from the Netherlands. And uh, I don't know, if, I guess you could call his style subtle, but uh, he's got some just incredible moody work forests and foggy stuff and uh, some, some of the mountains up north in Europe there. Um,
0: That's I think cool. He's
1: got a pretty cool style as well.
0: Awesome, man. Well dude, do. This has been really fun. I love uh, bantering about these types of topics with someone who's like-minded. So thanks for taking the time to, to, to chat.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. And thanks for doing these podcasts. I think it's great you're giving all these uh, random artists a voice and it's been so cool to hear from certain people.
0: Yeah, you bet, man. Well, thanks again to Matt for joining me on the podcast for such a fun discussion. Keep up the wonderful work. Thanks to those that choose to support the podcast financially over on Patreon, including our newest patrons, Guy Tal, Michael Gordon, Rob Patterson, Timothy Floyd, welcome back, and Mary Vega. I greatly appreciate all of you so very much. And for any patron listening, please reach out to me anytime if there's anything that I can do to help you. Well, if today's conversation about photography competitions intrigued you, I invite you to head over and check out the new competition that we've created at naturallandscapeawards.com. As the creators of the competition, we feel as though existing competitions lack differentiation between landscape photography that resembles digital art versus landscape photography that represents actual experiences in nature. So we decided to create one. A diverse and highly respected panel of judges have honored us by agreeing to be part of this unique effort. The panel represents some of the most experienced and respected figures in landscape photography field today, including Joe Cornish, William Neal, Sarah Marino, Alistair Benn, Alex Noriega, Adam Gibbs, Sandra Bartoka, and Stefan Forrester. One of our co-founders, Tim Parkin, has participated as a judge for several other competitions in the past and is well-versed on the various ways that they can go wrong. So we're very excited to implement some judging procedures, which we hope will overcome some of the common complaints and issues that we see in other competitions available today. If this sort of thing interests you, please head over to naturallandscapeawards.com to learn more and sign up to our mailing list to receive early bird discounts and updates. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in collaborating with us and listening. See you next week.